The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Hi, everyone. My name is Dan, um, and I'll be reading the scripture for tonight. Um, if you would just all turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be reading from chapter 1, verse 15, to chapter 2, verse 7. It's titled, Thanksgiving and Prayer. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's, for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and in his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. This is the reading of his word. You can be seated. Um, I really want to thank Andrew, thank Dan for helping me out tonight, but I do want to correct Andrew. Um, my voice is the worst voice that has ever been on this stage. So um, it is not even close, brother. So, uh, but I'm so thankful that um, the last minute you could stand in for us and do that tonight. That was a real blessing. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and Dan, it's nice to know that you can read the scriptures as well as sing them and all that as well. So thankful for that. Um, so uh, let me give, let me give the, the important announcement for Sunday morning in case some of you guys want to come early for prayer. The Sunday morning prayer time has been moved from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. and on the fourth floor. So if you'd like to come early to pray before church, um, I'd love for you to meet me there. Um, if some of you want to come and help us serve food at Riverside at 6.45, 7 o'clock a.m., we'd love to have you there as well. If you don't know what that means, you can write it in your journal and you can ask me about it later and we can talk to you about the ways that you can help us engage with all of that. Um, I believe that's all in the form of announcements. Um, really appreciated the prayers that we've already prayed tonight. Um, and I really want to ask us to continue to be reading in the book of Ephesians. I, please don't stop. If you've already been through it once, start again. And if you've been through it twice, start again. Because I feel like that this is going to become something for our church family that brings us life. And I can tell by the look on our faces that some of us are fatigued from the fast or we've been fatigued from the day. And there's a lot of things that are hitting us. And, and last night took a lot of energy out of me. And I scheduled poorly today and put a lot of important meetings on my schedule for today. So I'm even feeling the fatigue of the fast and the energy and all of that. But I, but I also have sensed the fact that God has really been with us. And he's really been searching in and through us to reveal himself more fully, to show himself more powerful. And so just as a quick recap to get us right back to where Dan just read the scriptures for us, I think it's really important for us to realize that Paul had been laboring for three years to start a church in a city that changed. It wasn't he preached for three years and the city changed like 30 years later. In the course of three years, an entire city, a powerful city, 
began to change the whole foundation of it, from temple worship to the ways that they spent their money, the things they were doing in their sexuality, all this kind of stuff. It was changing, and it all started with Paul walking into a synagogue, talking to people about Jesus, and finding 12 men that had been baptized by John. And he's like, wow, you haven't been discipled in a long time, because it was literally probably close to three decades since their baptism. And so he then introduces them. Do you want to know more about this Jesus that resurrected from the dead? And so he starts teaching them. And then the other Jewish people are listening in the synagogues. And then, then the antagonists in the synagogues that were like, no, 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 Paul is telling lies. Paul's telling lies. He didn't argue with them. He removed them so he could spend time with those that were receptive. And he moved into a hall where he could teach them. And then we find more and more as the story goes along that he... he he emphasized discipleship. He emphasized power, that they could have power. Power was on display in Paul. And when you look at Acts 19, you can see he was talking about theology, and he was also talking to them about the fact that they had to speak about Christ in public. And the word from last night was what? Lavished. And so these people were learning about the lavished love of God on their life. And when a group of people find the lavish love of God on their life, what happens in the city that they're in? Disruption. It disrupts everything. You know, I keep, I've mentioned this twice now because our church building is really close to what's called the strip here in Baltimore, the Baltimore Street. And, and, and there are a lot of ministries that are going to help women that are being harmed in those environments. And one of the things that I love about discipleship is if we actually take it seriously, we could put places like that out of business because nobody goes. You know, there's women aren't being harmed. Men aren't even desiring to go. Or if they do desire to go, they, the power of the Spirit quenches it. And they don't go anymore. Right? So if... If we read Acts 19 and we read into Acts 20, which we didn't spend a whole lot of time on, we find that that's what actually happened in Ephesus. People stopped going to the temple um, and engaging in all the ways that they would worship in that particular culture. And so there's a massive disruption. But in the midst of the disruption, they could not find a, a, a way to accuse the Christians. The only thing they could accuse them of was teaching about Jesus. They, they didn't steal. They, 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 they weren't talking badly about the temples or the goddesses. They weren't, they weren't defaming any of that. There was no reason for an accusation at all against them. And I keep coming back to 1 Peter 2.12 where it says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they, they, though, they, excuse me, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. They were free of accusations. They knew how to talk about Jesus. And because of the mixture of the Holy Spirit in their life, they were compelling. And so a lot of things were happening. So last night we talked about this lavish love of God. And if you weren't a part of that, I really think it's crucial that you go back and listen to that particular teaching. We're a part of the lavish love of God, but yet it's in Christ that the lavish love of God and all the promises of that love come. So if you don't feel like you're getting the lavish love of God, a couple of things we talked about last night is, well, have you placed your belief in Jesus? Because the object of everything that is true is about the Father. But it's in Jesus that we enter. It's because of him. He's a gate. He's a house. He's whatever you want to envision. But he is the place where we go into to get the lavish love of God and all the promises of eternal inheritance, of power from the spirit, of becoming holy. All of that comes through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And the thing that Paul emphasized a lot last night was is that we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. We're sealed. There should be no doubt, there should be no fear, there should be no question about whether our faith in Christ is solid because the Holy Spirit is the one that seals us. That's not, that, that seal was, it's security, it's, it's being authenticated, like I am a son or daughter of God. There's so much to that, and I would encourage you guys to go on. Now let me, let me start tonight in this Ephesians 1, saying Ephesians 1 is going to be a lot easier for me to teach than the 2 through 7. 
And I have a feeling that we might be a little lighter tonight because people read ahead and they're like, ah, I don't want to de- don't want to deal with those first few verses of Ephesians chapter two. But we're going to. But we're going to start with the end of Ephesians one. Um, the question I asked one of my neighbors when I was in the first grade, um, if I remember it correctly, that's going back really hard for me in my memory. But um, I lived in Prince George's County on what's called Old Soper Road. I don't even know if it exists anymore. But at the end of our street was an, a couple that was probably, to me at the time, they were an old couple, but they're probably my age now, right? You know? but, um, but I remember going up to him and saying, how far, how far can you see with your telescope? Because he had one of those big home telescopes that had the big lens on the end of it and those little places you look down like this in. And because I was doing my binoculars and doing all this kind of stuff, and he told me, come over one night when it's dark. And my parents let me go. We went. And I had looked in my binoculars at the skies. And it wasn't until I looked into that telescope that I really saw. Right? Because to me, I was like, wow, look at all those little white dots. Those are beautiful. And it was, it was magnificent. Just, I mean, it's nice getting out of the city and getting away from the light canopy we have here and actually seeing stars. But... When I got a look in that telescope for the first time, I mean, I looked and I was like, what? Where is that? I mean, you could see flares off of certain stars. You could see um, like planets. I mean, I'm like, wow, it looks white. When I look in here, it's red. And I was like, what? You know, and I was doing back and forth. I mean, you could see so much detail of things that were going on in space. But the thing that I didn't have access to where I was, was I didn't have access to this powerful telescope. And I hope, because we've been talking about the Holy Spirit, that you guys are seeing the connection, even before I even talk about it anymore. Because the Holy Spirit is what amplifies us to see the truth. The Holy Spirit is the one that you walk into a room and you're like, why doesn't everybody see that this is wrong? I mean, the Holy Spirit on many occasions is the reason why we walk in and we know when it's a bad financial deal and when it's not a good financial deal, right? We, we, we're the, because of the Holy Spirit, because most everybody is looking either just with their eyes or they might have like little binoculars, but they don't have access to the power to see. And so Paul is talking to them about power, and I want to emphasize, and the reason why I think Paul talks more about power in Acts 19 and 20 in the letter of Ephesians than he does pretty much any of the rest of his writings is because the city of Ephesus was all about it. The city of Ephesus had every form of power, financial power, governmental power. It had all of the different world religions and all the different cults, and people came there seeking power. People would come looking for all of that. It was not just this beautiful city with all these beautiful temples and all this wonderful activity that was happening around it, but it was a religious hub for the world. People were learning about different gods through the city of Ephesus, so they would, they would come on pilgrimages to Ephesus just to experience a powerful god. And so what does Paul end up doing in all of his teachings? He's like, oh, well, that's not the power. What you're experiencing here is going to fail you. It's going to be your downfall. Their world in Ephesus, I believe, was dominated by the principalities and powers that we're going to be reading more about later on after Paul deals with the theology and he gets into the practice. Paul what I feel like is in the greatest display. He's talking about the greatest display of power in the world. Did any of you guys pick up on it in in Ephesians 1? What was the greatest display of God's power since the world was spoken into existence? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul here in Ephesians 1, after he's talked to us about the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit, and then he's looking at people and trying to help them to understand that there's power in their faith, he's saying to them that the most powerful thing that God has ever done is raised Jesus from the dead because nobody ever been raised from the dead before. Now, there's a lot of mythical letters and writings and all this, but there had been nobody that ever witnessed the resurrection like Christ. 
the risen Jesus, he goes on to say, just isn't alive. He's enthroned. So imagine Paul, he's talking to them about the real Jesus. Now remember, Paul saw Jesus. He's speaking on his behalf in this moment, and he's encouraging them, and he's saying to them, not only did he resurrect, but this Jesus is now enthroned in heaven, and every man and woman is going to bow down to him because he's the only true human king. Right? So this is what Paul is laying for them as a foundation. And he's saying to them, this same Jesus that was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit is now what is accessible to you. And so that same spirit is now available for you on daily use. Now, the problem is, is academically, we like to talk about the Father, Son, Spirit and what he does, and how we're holy, how he dwells in us. And I think we're comfortable with talking about it from just a, that is true. But I think Paul is stretching this church in Ephesus to say, not only is it true, it is real. It can happen. It can move. There are things that God wants to do in you if our eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus and our belief is in him and the Holy Spirit truly does come, then we can actually get involved in the work of God in the world. I believe far too many Christians today, and I also suspect Paul's day, are quite unaware that the power is there and available. I think most people go to church and they want good music, a good teaching, but they don't really come to church expecting power. Paul was obviously facing this in the city of Ephesus some decades after he uh, had been there with them and now being imprisoned. He's now writing to them. I think a lot of people were like me with my neighbor. I thought that I had access to everything that I needed. It wasn't until I got introduced to this telescope that I realized that there's so much more. What kind of power do we need to draw into Sometimes people will say, well, I don't seem to have much power as a Christian. Or I can't see the power of Jesus doing very much in the world. And I believe Paul in this letter is addressing that. Because somewhere along the lines, you probably fall into one of those two categories. You fall into, I can't really see Jesus doing much in the world. Or I really don't feel much power in my Christian walk. And I believe that what Paul says here in verse um, uh, 17 is that he's saying to them as Christians, I, he, he, his expectation is, is that we all don't automatically get it when we believe. It doesn't automatically, like all the truth and all the power, and we go from believing in Jesus to 100% powered up by the Holy Spirit. Because many of us are struggling with our minds, right? And we know how powerful that is. But what he's alluding to here, listen, let's go back and reread part of 17. May, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So there's a progression that he's talking to this church in Ephesus about. So what I want you to hear from me tonight is I'm not saying that you go from unbelief to superpower. There is a gap in our learning, in our growing as God is working out in us. And Paul refers to it as the Holy Spirit is the one that comes and gives you wisdom and gives you revelation. And it would almost be like as if my neighbor had a telescope that had multiple lenses in it. And the first time I looked, wow, I was exposed to something. He goes, wait, check this out. And then I go, wow, I get to even see more. And then it's like in our faith, we're growing in our awareness that we are holy and dearly loved children of God. And it's when you and I fully embrace the fact that we're holy, dearly loved children of God, that, boy, the power can just flow at that point. But too many times we feel like, oh, man, I am not holy. I'm not worthy. I'm ugly. I'm I'm unintelligent. I've I've done too many wrong things. And if you remember what we talked about last last night, when Paul drops the, the word grace at the beginning... You hear his name at the front, apostle because of Jesus Christ. 
And what was he before he met Jesus? Well, he had a different name and he was a murderer. Now he's walking into the church and speaking with power and authority and he's giving them something. And most of us in here, had I 10 years ago killed one of your family members and then said, come to ten, you know, nine or 10 days of straight praying with me, I guarantee you, you probably wouldn't want to come listen to me unless you had seen a miraculous work of God in me. How else would you have the capacity to forgive me enough to even want to listen? I mean, Paul is an incredible picture of this grace that's been poured out. And he, so much of Paul's writing here is about the prayer is, is that our eyes and our hearts are open. Is that, oh, wait a minute, oh, I know there's access to a telescope, but I don't want to look through it. It's like so we, we fear just even approaching it. And I think that's what a lot of denominations struggle with. I joked around the first night, I'm ready for us to get a little bit more Pentecostal. But some of you in here are like, whoa, I've seen bad Pentecostal. I've seen bad Baptist, Lutheran, uh, you know, whatever, Catholic. I've seen a lot of bad of a lot of different denominations. But I want to be a part of a church that a group of people get together and say, I'm holy and dearly loved. Despite what you've done or where you've been or what has happened in your life, I think Paul here is saying that God has already begun to work in them powerfully as their loyal faith and love indicates in verse 15. I mean, he, he's complimenting them off the chart in this prayer. This prayer is like a mini version of John chapter 17. I would encourage you to go back and read John 17. It's a beautiful summation of the way Jesus prayed over his own disciples. And now you see Paul praying over this early church. And a lot of it is all about the fact that he's complimenting. Like, you guys have been loyal in your faith. You've been loyal in your love. And because of that, Paul is praying that they'll have confidence to add to that an increase in wisdom and knowledge about the things that the Holy Spirit does. And he says this for two reasons. One, he wants to make sure they understand their inheritance, and he also wants them to understand the power of God, which is for them in their time. He wants them to be firm. And like, life is going to be hard until the King of Kings is fully revealed on earth. But I am with you, and you have an inheritance that you just need to hold on for. And so, so much of this is trying to remind us of the fact that we have a great promise, but until that promise is fulfilled, we have power. And that power, the power, which, by the way, did what? Raised Jesus from the dead, now can live in us and begin to transform our world, can transform our community, can transform our lives, and can continue to flood into our lives the glory of God. So much of that language is in this text. This doesn't mean that we become conjurers of cheap tricks. And when I say that, who do you think of? Gandalf the Grey, Lord of the Rings, right? Did any of you hear that in that? He's like, um, Bilbo Baggins, you think me of a conjurer of cheap tricks? You know, I mean, however he would have said that, right? Um, but that's not, what the, that's not what we should be desiring from the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be so holy and so loved that people are like, ah, you know, whatever. I, I, my car tire's broken. Like, no, it's not. And go look out the window. He's got a new tire on the car, right? I mean, we don't want to do something that seems petty. Because, again, if you follow the Lord's Prayer, everything about our holiness and our lives is about the will of God. So it's not about me having power to do my will. It's about me having power to do his will. And so, so much of um, this power that we should gain access to um, is so that the, the, the desire of God to have people enter into Christ can be fulfilled. Right, but when, we, when he speaks of Christ as an exalted over all the possible rulers and authorities, I think this would have been really powerful for them. Because the Christians in Ephesus had a ton of different leaders that they were having to be submissive to. Remember, I told you a little bit about the city of Ephesus. It was like a free city inside of the Roman Empire, but they only had their freedom because they were really good to Rome. And so there was so much going on, and so everybody had their own little share, but nobody wanted to cause a riot because they didn't want there to be a problem um, with what's going on. And so 
the local magistrates, the local officials, the provincial rulers, the governors, the kings, the princes, they were just lists and lists and lists and lists of people that had superiority over them. And Paul is saying to them, you know, all these people that are making your life miserable, um, by the way, they will one day be at Jesus' feet. They will be under his feet. They will not interact with him. And this is what has been accomplished through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He is the truly human being before whom all of the world must bow down. And someday that will be true. And King Jesus has hands and feet. And what, is, what are they? That's us. We are his agents within this present world, and we are the church. It is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all in all. If only the church would realize this and act accordingly. So that kind of ends Ephesians chapter 1. Um, we ended chapter 1. We're going back into chapter 2. Um, and so I want to remind us of that just real quick. Let me just share with you the first sentence of the first verse. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Um, about 23 years ago, my wife and I were in Ohio and we had been invited to a, a family in our churches to their house to eat dinner. Um, they had a, a kid in our student ministry and they were excited about us coming. And, you know, at the time I was 22 years old and in charge of about 30 youth in a church. And so this family invited us over and they lived down near the Ohio River. And so we left the Eastgate side of, of our, our, our village. Sorry, I still, still stuck in Guatemala too. But we left the Eastgate side of Cincinnati heading south towards New Richmond and we were supposed to catch a highway. And they gave elaborate instructions like you go this direction and then you go a certain number of miles and you're going to see a sign and you turn here. And this was before GPS, by the way. I just want you guys to know that. This is, people did not have a person talking to them about directions. It hasn't always been that way. We actually had what was called a Randall McNally map and it was in your car, and you used to have to go state by state and open it up and look through it. And occasionally, if you're in a big metropolitan area, there would be a, a, a map just for your, your city that you were going into. And so for me, and I must, I must say, before I get into this story very far, I am a very confident directional person. I am not the person that ever feels lost. Um, and so... We were driving that night, and it was dark, and I think it was a little rainy, and we were driving, and I was driving confidently, and because they said you go a few miles down this road, um, I just I wasn't paying attention. Ginger and I were probably talking. I was obviously very confident. I knew where I was going, even though we had just moved to this area, and um, next thing you know, I'm like, we've been driving like 20 minutes, and we haven't seen anything, and I stopped at a gas station, asked for directions to this neighborhood, and the guy looked at me like he had no idea what neighborhood I was talking about. That's how far I had gone the wrong direction. And it wasn't until we opened up a map, looked, and I'm like, oh, wow, I should have turned left, but I turned right. And I was going down a really good road, and Ginger and I were having a really good time. But it wasn't until we realized that something was wrong and we should have been there. Thankfully, our hosts were great. They welcomed us in. They kept the food warm, and we still had a good meal. But it's, I, think, I think what Paul's getting at here in Ephesians 2 is much like that. I think it serves the point what Paul is making in the first three verses, which really is a powerful sentence. The lives of human beings like us, left to ourselves, not only choose the wrong direction, but we remain confident that we're heading in the right one. Um, and this is really going to get a little hairy tonight from here. I just want you to know this. I'm, I, I want to, in love, encourage us I want to, in love, encourage people that are listening online. I know there's even a few people listening online with the sole intent of proving me wrong. And I understand that. that's kind of that's why partly I'm not a big fan of putting things out, because I know people are wanting to oh, let me check his theology. Let me check this. But this is the one thing that I will argue until the end of my days is that you and I, when we're left by ourselves, will go the wrong direction. And we think we're right. We think we're right. We might not have any reason to believe we're right other than the fact that I'm right. 
That's, that's an issue. I know that my dad was that way sometimes, and where he, it didn't matter. You couldn't talk to him. He was like, he was just right. And I think I got a little bit of that, and I've been asking the Holy Spirit to break me of that, and Ginger's been really good at helping me break myself of that. But so much of our lives is about being right. But what happens to you when you're wrong? So as we begin to walk into this tonight, what we're going to find out is much like Paul's day and much like our day, um, people are heading in the wrong direction and the road is smooth. Things are going well. It's not like things have gotten bumpy. It's not like things are bad. They've got relationships. They've got cash. They've got things. And sometimes you might not have any of that. You might not have those things, but your life is going well. You have your health. You have all this, and you have joy. You have all these things, but you're heading in the wrong direction. So Paul here is now going to talk to them about that. It's kind of a particular point to them that he wants them to understand because not only do they need to understand that people are going in the wrong direction because they once were that, This is a letter to help them make disciples so that when they are talking to the people they've introduced into Christ, they now can go back and be like, you know what? We were on the wrong road until Christ, until the lavish love of God interrupted us and put us on the right path. And so as we look at this, so much of our desires, what I've heard from people is that one of the very popular arguments of people that have actually come to my office or we've had time in coffee shops is that my desire, my aspirations that I find deep within myself have to be obviously God-given. So the elephant in the room is sexual morality. I have actually written a talk that I'm going to give soon solely on what I believe the Bible has to say and what is pleasing to God as it relates to sexuality. That's both heterosexual and homosexual. I don't want to get into it all here tonight. But what I do want to say about the sexual immorality part, it is very dangerous for us at any level to accept the fact that we ever say about anything, this is how God made me. We've got to be really careful And if we say something like that, then people... Now, again, I don't want to compare, quote, the sexual identity argument that's very prevalent in the Christian church today as well as in our culture to every other nuance. I'm not saying they're all equal. I just want to talk to you about a few things that I think is really important for us as a church to mature in. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to be the power that we look into. We can't, on this one issue, step back and say, I only want to believe what my eyes see. We need to be able to say, I want to believe what the Holy Spirit says about this. Because that is the true teacher. That is the true source of wisdom. But if we go with this mentality, well, it's, what, it's how God's made me. It's, um, then what about people whose nature is super aggressive? God just made me super aggressive. So that means that you can just be super aggressive. I mean, I believe at the heart of somebody that is like leading nations to harm other nations, they're just being super aggressive, aren't they? That's how God made them, right? Or the bully on the street, they're super aggressive. How about the type A personality employee? Let's be a little, let's, let's bring it back a little bit. Just because you're type A and you're detail driven, does it give us a, does it give us permission to be a jerk or, or to be unkind or to not be gentle and loving? But no, type A people are like, no, we got to get this done. And those chairs have got to get to that wall and you're not doing anything. That's the type A personality, right? And so, so much of us is to say, well, that's just who I am. That's how I'm made. That's how I'm designed. What does that look like for people that are naturally dishonest? I don't know if you've been in enough relationships. There are a lot of people in the world that are wired to lie much more quickly than other people. I mean, it's, it is the truth. I mean, there are people that I know that even without Jesus, they would never tell a lie. They don't believe in Jesus, but they are just like, you know, I, don't, I, could, I could never tell a lie. Now we know they're lying, right? <laughs> yes. Sometimes an entire like, section of a population, you know, it can be living underneath the systemic pressures 
that impact them, that are shaping them and identifying them, but it's not true. It's happening so much in our urban culture, in our poor, amongst our immigrants. I mean, even, even, even the children of wealthy parents who don't know how to love, right? So much of who we are really is the influences in our life and where we were born and who we were born into. And so we've got to be really careful with the argument, well, this is how he made me. He must want me to live like this. Well, from a Christian perspective, these, um, there are obviously some responses um, to this. I believe here in the first part of Ephesians 2, he's talking about the fact that when God acted in Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the Messiah, he not only revealed himself. Now, I want you to understand this. Chapter 1, the object of the sentence was whom? The Father. The preposition was Jesus. It's in and through Jesus. And then what do we get because of our relationship with Jesus? We get power. And so what I believe is happening here in, uh, in this particular um, verse is that when we believe in Jesus, we actually are believing in the image of God. Because Jesus, according to Matthew, in the first two chapters, was introduced to us as Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And I don't think that was just a nice nickname. I mean, he was God in flesh. And so when we want to know what God is like, the best place for us to go is to the Gospels and actually looking at Jesus. And so he revealed in Jesus what being fully human looked like. And one of the character traits of Jesus that stands out is he was self-sacrificing. So many times he would end up doing for others rather than doing something for himself. Deeply self-sacrificing, even to the point in the garden, right before he, he was taken to the cross, he did talk to his dad, saying, Dad, can I drink a different cup? But if it's your will... I will drink that cup. And so he can identify with every aspect of our humanity because all of us have been up against things where we're like, God, please take this away. But how many of us have the maturity through the power of the Spirit to say, but if you don't, I want your will to be done. And if your will is that I go to my death, glory to you. I mean, Jesus set a phenomenal example. I love how in verse 3, he's talking about this, the, the flesh and the mind and, and seeing them as sources of danger. But Paul doesn't elevate one over the other. Like he's saying, look, you could be troubled in your mind, you'd be troubled in your body, and all of these things can lead you and can be a problem for you um, that if we're not careful will lead us to death which obviously had Ginger and I stayed on that road and never turned around, who knows where we'd be right now. But before we look at Paul's answer to some of these really hard questions, I want us to talk about two forces that he mentions here that really do pull and compel us, but we as a church must have it in our theology. We must believe it or else we will be ineffective in addressing the things that pull us to deceit that make us think, I can't change or I don't see, or I can't see, or I'm, I'm just who I am. The first thing in here that he talks about is the present age. What was he talking to the people in Ephesus about? I mean, goodness gracious, it was a sexually immoral city where they had all types of different acts that they would do to worship Aphrodite. I'm sorry, not Aphrodite. Um, yes, Artemis, thank you. Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, and so with that, you also saw all different types of abuses and things that were happening and the ways that things were being done. And he's saying to them, look, your present age, the culture of your city, the spirit of your city is fighting against you. And then the second thing that he goes on, he talks about the ruler of the power of the air. All right. Now, this is something that I've bumped up a lot against in our church family. There are a lot of people in our church family that do not believe in Satan. 
They don't believe in a Satan. They don't, they don't, we can't even, as, as much as we can talk about Lucifer, we can talk about Satan, we can talk about the evil one. Is it capitalized? Is it not capitalized? Who are, but here's the thing. Paul believed that there was an evil, that there was an evil one. And that evil one wants to steal, kill, and destroy from you, which actually is a quote from Jesus, who believed in the evil one and had several interactions with him that didn't go very well for the evil one, right? And so what we need to understand is that so much of our life, we are so focused on the physical that we fail to see that there is spiritual war happening around us. And so what ends up happening is, is we don't want to look into the telescope at the power available to us through the Holy Spirit, because once we do that, we're now going to become more aware. We'll see things that we don't think we should see and we don't want to see, but yet he's going to talk about it in a couple of chapters in Ephesians about how we address that. But yet he wants us to reach in and experience the full power, which is wisdom and revelation. It's knowledge and understanding and revelation of the powers and the wonders of God. But I think one of the most devastating things that Paul was facing in his day was still the Jew-Gentile gap. Because I think here um, in the first two verses, he's referencing the Gentiles. And then he's also throwing in a little jab towards the Jewish people when he says we. He's identifying himself here, I believe. And then I might be wrong, but what I want to say in this is, is that there are a lot of people in church that sit around thinking that sermon was good for everybody else. Oh, I, I, that's not for me. Oh, I, I'm good. Which in many ways was a first century Jewish mentality is that they had what other people couldn't have and they were proud about it. But yet, and that's a very simplistic way of saying this. I know some very strong believing Jewish people. But yet the understanding that Paul was fighting against, which if you want to understand that, Paul gave the Jewish people in Romans chapter 2 a very good verbal lashing because they thought they were superior to everybody else. And he's like, let's talk about your sins. It's amazing what goes on in Romans chapter 2, actually the whole book of Romans, but we're not on that one. So what is Paul's answer? So what is the answer? The settled, like ingrained in us, habitual behavior, the things that we say, I just don't want to do this anymore. I want to stop doing this, is a road that leads to our death. Sometimes we're aware of that, sometimes we're not. But the course correction in our life comes in us saying, I believe that Jesus' death was for me. That's when it all can start. That's when the power can really be released. He has been raised. And then he goes on to say to them, so have we. I feel like that one of the things that through this series that's really convicted me, I thought back, I have, one of the benefits of being a pastor of a young church is we do more weddings than we do funerals. But I went back thinking through the funerals that I've done in the last 20 years. And I have to tell you this. I don't think in one of the funerals I talked about resurrection. That convicted me. Because if the person in the box in front of me believed in Jesus, that's not their end. They will resurrect in Christ. They will. That is not it. There's a resurrection. And so now I'm going to be editing all my funeral notes to include a moment where I can talk about the belief of an individual and talk about the fact that it is true because we are marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And what did the Holy Spirit do to Jesus? It resurrected him. So death cannot hold us down. It can't. It's not going to win. And so as we are talking to people, again, part of this, for those of you that believe, is I want to just give us a tool for us how to walk and talk people through the theology of the fact that the Father, Son, and Spirit played a role in our salvation. This is what the Father does, this is what the Son does, and this is what the Spirit does. But in the process, we're waging war against our ingrained bad behavior, and a lot of times our sinfulness is taking us down a road that we shouldn't be going on, but we are enjoying it. 
And it's when the Spirit gets involved that that conviction comes. It is our tears that water the seeds of truth in people's lives. The Spirit brings conviction. You can't hold on to somebody on the wrong road and be like, you're on the wrong road, you're on the wrong road. Because if that was true, then there were a lot of times in my marriage where Ginger would have been right. Because I was confident we were going the right way. And she's like, I don't think you're going the right direction. I'm like, yes, I am. I'm going the right way. And she was trying to convict me I was going the wrong direction. I was confident I was going the wrong direction, but I was wrong. And so human nature is going to wage war against us. And it's, we have to, as a church, learn how to, in love, graciously, kindly, gently, respectfully, with reverence, with humility and servitude and self-sacrifice, with weeping and tears, look at people in the face and be like, you're heading down the wrong road. But we can't pick up the baton of conviction and say, I have to convict them. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. So one of the things I love what Paul does here, I don't know if you picked up on this as Dan was reading it. Listen to the list of things that Paul stresses about the unbelievable, magnificent kindness of God when he meets us on the road when we're heading in the wrong direction. Did you hear it? God is rich in mercy. He loved us with a great love. His sheer grace has saved us. His grace is rich beyond all telling. He has lavished kindness upon us. Paul's language is strong about what's true, about how God meets us on the road when we're heading in the wrong direction. And whenever anybody comes to me and wants to talk about God being a bit harsh, mean, small-minded, insensitive, how can God allow that evil thing to happen to that group of people or that individual or give cancer to a child and people act like as if God is harsh. I believe that that is a sign that we're on a wrong road. We can ask doubtful questions. God can take it. But when we let things like that sink into us, we're speeding in the wrong direction because God doesn't harm anybody. We're stuck in between this birth pains, as Jesus called it, from his ascension to his return, where things are being renewed and restored, and we have to join him as his hands and feet in the renewal work. And you can't do work without getting sweaty. You can't do work without getting dirty. You can't do work without feeling some kind of pain. But the crucial factor here. In Paul's writing, and you'll get it over and over and over again as Jesus himself. If you take away his resurrection, all roads will lead to death. But because of the resurrection, it doesn't matter what road you're on, he can turn you around. Because of Jesus, we get to go the right way. First, I think it's really important tonight that we pray and ask God, am I going in the right direction? I think that's probably one of the most simplistic ways of us to summarize Ephesians 2 to this point is just us simply saying to God, God, am I going in the right direction? Because we might be confidently going in the wrong direction. And if the Holy Spirit tonight was to reveal to you that you were going into the wrong direction, would you have the strength and the courage to turn around and follow after him? I would love for us tonight in our prayers as we reflect on this evening to be thinking about this Holy Spirit that lets us see. What would it look like for us tonight to say, Holy Spirit, let me see. Let me get my turn at the telescope. And you push another believer. He's like, no, I got one for all of you, right? I'm, I'm good enough for all of you. Because it's, it's very often like Jesus with the, with the parable of the speck in the eye and the plank in the eye, where we constantly want to point out other people's flaws, but we have a really hard time of admitting where we're being obstinate and saying, this is what I want. This is what I desire. This is what... I mean, let's be honest, uh, I wouldn't be a pastor today if it was my desire. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a professional baseball player, and then if by chance I couldn't be a professional baseball player, um, I was kind of hoping that I would have gone into some sort of 
like police or military kind of background. And so, but everything in high school was like, I'm not going to the police academy, I'm going to spring training, right? That was, that was what I wanted to do. But it wasn't until a knee injury my junior year where the Lord woke me up in the middle of the night and I had a true encounter with the Holy Spirit. And he just said to me, you need to put this baseball dream away and I want you to serve the church. I woke up, Kurt, who was in the bunk above me, and I told him, he saw me trembling and shaking and I, and I shared it with him. And then it wasn't long after that that my pastor and other people were affirming it. And it wasn't long after that that I was literally able to zip up my baseball bag and leave it in the garage and go off to college so that I could study to become a minister. My desire would be to be one of the banners on Pratt Street right now, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Right? That's what I wanted. That was my desire. But yet God's like, no, I want you to do something else. And you know what? I am grateful that I did because this to me has been more life-giving even though it's been incredibly hard. Tons of opposition, tons of different types of persecution. But yet this is what God's will was for me. I wonder how many of us in here tonight just need to say, God, am I doing your will? Let me pray for you. Father, I, I come tonight and I just say, Father, we want to see. We want, we want to have the clarity that the Holy Spirit brings and we want the power that the Holy Spirit brings. And so, Father, I ask that even in the midst of my fatigue and, and pain that you um, were just glorified tonight. And, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name that as my brothers and sisters reflect on these questions um, of am I on the right way? Am I going in the right direction? And, and Father, if they were reflecting on if, if the Holy Spirit was convincing them to turn around, Lord, would you speak to them? Would you speak to me? Show me where I'm heading in the wrong direction. Lord, just fill us with your Spirit. Guide us in our prayers. Father, lead the people in this room here tonight or online, if they're watching, to pray with one another and to ask, Holy Spirit, reveal, give revelation. Holy Spirit, give wisdom. Let me see. And so, Lord, would your will and way be done tonight. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.